From New York, this is Democracy Now! Today, justice has been served. Today, we prove that no one is above the law. No matter how rich, powerful, or politically connected you are, everyone must play by the same rules. We have a responsibility to protect the integrity of the marketplace. And for years, Donald Trump engaged in deceptive business practices and tremendous fraud. The legal setbacks facing Donald Trump are piling up. He now has 30 days to pay more than $400 million in a civil fraud case brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James. We'll speak with Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times investigative reporter Russ Butner. His team's reporting led to the state's case. Then we go to The Hague, where the International Court of Justice is holding a six-day hearing where over 50 countries are testifying against Israel's occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. The state of Palestine appeals to this court to guide the international community in upholding international law, ending injustice, and achieving a just and lasting peace to guide us towards a future in which Palestinian children are treated as children. We speak with a surgeon who just returned from volunteering in Gaza. Dr. Irfan Galeria says, I'm an American doctor who went to Gaza. What I saw wasn't war, it was annihilation. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United States is proposing a U.N. Security Council draft resolution calling for a, quote, temporary ceasefire in Gaza as soon as practicable, unquote. The draft measure also calls for the release of all hostages and an end to restrictions on the delivery of humanitarian aid. It's the first time the U.S. has used the word ceasefire at the Security Council after vetoing previous efforts by other member states to stop the bloodshed. This comes as the U.N. Security Council is voting today on a resolution by Algeria calling for an immediate ceasefire. The U.S. has already vowed to veto it. It's not clear when the U.S. proposal will be put to a vote. The death toll in Gaza since October 7th is nearing 30,000, not counting thousands more who are missing, presumed dead and buried beneath the rubble. Amidst worsening hunger, UNICEF is warning the war-torn territory is, quote, poised to witness an explosion in preventable child deaths, which would compound the already unbearable level of child deaths, unquote. Israeli forces again opened fire at crowds waiting for humanitarian aid, killing at least one person and wounding many others. This is a displaced Palestinian seeking food aid in Gaza City. Because we want to eat, we are dying of hunger. Why would someone put himself at risk of dying by coming here? It is in order to feed the children. We are dying of hunger and there is no food or drink left in Gaza. There is a famine. 
The U.N. Human Rights Agency says it's received reports of rights violations against Palestinian women and girls in Gaza and the occupied West Bank since October 7th. Israeli forces are accused of arbitrary execution, sexual assault, separating families, and many other forms of inhumane treatment. Degrading photos of Palestinian women were also reportedly taken by Israeli soldiers and shared online. U.N. experts are calling for an independent investigation into the abuses. In The Hague, arguments are continuing at the International Court of Justice, where Palestinians and more than 50 countries and organizations are testifying against Israel's occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. It's the largest ever participation in the world court's history. Earlier today, the South African ambassador, Vusi Madonsela, said the situation in Palestine is a, quote, more extreme form of the apartheid that was institutionalized against black people in my country, he said. Palestinian Foreign Minister Riyad al-Malki said that, quote, the genocide underway in Gaza is a result of decades of impunity and inaction. Riyad Mansour, Palestinian envoy to the U.N., delivered an emotional testimony Monday. The state of Palestine appeals to this court to guide the international community in upholding international law, ending injustice and achieving a just and lasting peace, to guide us towards a future in which Palestinian children are treated as children. <laughs> Not as demographic threat in which the identity of the group to which we belong does not diminish the human rights to which we are all entitled, a future in which no Palestinian and no Israelis is killed. We'll have more on the historic World Court hearings later in the program when we go to The Hague. Israel's Knesset narrowly voted Monday against expelling lawmaker Ofer Kassif, a member of the Hadash party, who supported South Africa's genocide case against Israel at the International Court of Justice. The move to expel him fell short by just five votes. To see our interviews with Knesset member Ofer Kassif, go to democracynow.org. Meanwhile, Brazil has recalled its ambassador to Israel. Brazil said it won't retract President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva's comment calling Israel's war on Gaza a genocide and comparing the attacks to the Nazi Holocaust, remarks that led Israel to declare Lula persona non grata in Israel. Brazil's foreign ministry has also summoned the Israeli ambassador for talks. In London, a critical appeal for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is underway at the British High Court of Justice in what could be Assange's last chance to stop his extradition to the United States. Assange has been held in London's Belmarsh prison since 2019. He was charged under the U.S. Espionage Act and faces a 175-year prison sentence for publishing classified documents exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
Julian Assange's wife, Stella, has called the situation a matter of life and death. Before heading into court, Stella Assange addressed her husband's supporters gathered outside for the two-day hearing. There is no possibility of a fair trial if Julian is extradited to the United States. He should never be extradited to the United States. He would never be safe. The United States plotted to murder my husband. He is being accused of journalism. This case is an admission by the United States that they now criminalize investigative journalism. It's an attack on all journalists all over the world. It's an attack on the truth, and it's an attack on the public's right to know. Julian is a political prisoner, and his life is at risk. What happened to Navalny can happen to Julian. He has to be released. This farce has to end. In a controversial ruling in Haiti, a judge investigating the 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moïse has indicted the former First Lady Martine Moïse and ex-Haitian Prime Minister Claude Joseph, accusing them of involvement in the killing. Court documents accuse Martine Moïse, who was shot and seriously injured in the 2021 attack that killed her husband, of conspiring with Joseph to kill her husband and suggest she was even plotting to assume the presidency herself. The former chief of Haiti's National Police is also among some 50 people recently charged. Martin Moïse and Claude Joseph have denounced U.S.-backed acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry for weaponizing Haiti's justice system to persecute his opponents. Henry has himself been implicated in the assassination plot, including by a former judge who previously oversaw the investigation. Political turmoil and bloody gang violence has gripped Haiti amidst mounting protests to remove Ariel Henry from power. Indian farmers are continuing their protest march towards the capital, New Delhi, after rejecting a proposal from the government for a five-year contract guaranteeing higher crop prices. Thousands of farmers have been camping out about 120 miles outside of New Delhi as authorities have deployed tear gas and erected barricades to prevent access to the city. On Monday, Mahinder Singh, a 100-year-old farmer from Punjab, joined the march. My family stops me from protesting, but our expenses are not covered. I have two children, daughters. I have a family. What choice do I have? Our lands are gone. Our rights are gone. They, the government, do not give us the rights even when we demand them. In Wisconsin, Democratic Governor Tony Evers signed into law new congressional maps reversing the extreme Republican gerrymandering enacted under Governor Scott Walker in 2011. The move could give Democrats an edge in the swing state, as the whole Wisconsin Assembly and half the state Senate are up for re-election in November. Wisconsin Republicans agreed to the new maps rather than challenge them at the state's liberal Supreme Court, which they worried could result in new district lines more favorable to Democrats. This is Governor Evers at Monday's signing ceremony. Wisconsin is not a red state. It is not a blue state. Wisconsin is a purple state. And I believe our map should reflect, reflect that basic fact. I believe, as I've also said, often said, that the people should get to choose their elected officials, not the other way around. In business news, Capital One announced it's acquiring Discover Financial Services for $35 billion, merging two of the country's largest credit card companies. The deal will have to pass regulatory approval as the Biden administration is seeking to tighten rules on financial mergers. 
Meanwhile, Colorado is suing to block grocery chain Kroger's $25 billion merger with Albertsons. The merger would create the largest supermarket chain in the United States, with some 5,000 stores giving it near-monopoly control to set prices and underpay its workers. In Washington state, Japanese-Americans are joining immigrant rights activists demanding the closure of an immigration detention center in Tacoma run by the private group GEO Group. The Northwest Detention Center has been the site of several hunger strikes over the years due to inhumane conditions. State inspectors were recently denied entry to the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Jail. On Friday, the groups blocked Seattle's federal building as part of their action. I am here for my great-grandmother, Yoshie Iwamura who had to give birth to my grandmother, Karen Iwamura, in camp at Minidoka. I say free them all and stop repeating history. The group Sudo for Solidarity and La Resistencia also marked the annual Day of Remembrance when Japanese Americans were declared enemies of the state in 1942 and incarcerated. And in Colorado, a former internment camp has reopened its doors as the nation's newest national park. Over 10,000 people of Japanese descent were imprisoned at Camp Amache between 1942 and 1945. National Park Service Director Chuck Sams, the first Native American to hold the position, said, quote, Amache's addition to the national park system is a reminder that a complete account of the nation's history must include our dark chapters of injustice. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Juan, it's an honor to celebrate the 28th anniversary of Democracy Now! with you, with the whole team and our listeners, viewers, readers, and stations. To mark the occasion, we've just surpassed 2 million viewers on YouTube. Yes, Amy. And who would have thought back in 1996 that this newscast, which was originally supposed to be just a one-year program covering the 1996 presidential election for a handful of Pacifica community radio stations, would still be on the air nearly three decades later with a worldwide audience that has grown steadily since then? I guess we must be doing something right. It's, it's been an honor as well for me to work with you and the amazing staff of Democracy Now! over all this time. Well, it's been an epic journey, Juan, and I'm so glad to be on it with you. Well, we begin today's show with the legal setbacks that continue to pile up against leading Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump, even as more trials loom. Trump's latest legal defeat came in a New York court as part of a losing streak in his home state. On Friday, a New York Supreme Court justice ordered Donald Trump to pay $450 million in penalties and interests for illegally inflating the value of his assets in order to secure more favorable loans and insurance for his New York real estate empire. Trump's assets, including Trump Tower in Manhattan— could be used to pay the fine as a 30-day deadline looms. Trump is also barred from running any business in New York for three years. Trump's two eldest sons face a two-year ban and were each ordered to pay $4 million. 
Judge Arthur Nguyen also said Judge Barbara Jones will continue to act as independent monitor of Trump's businesses and ordered an additional independent director of compliance at the Trump Organization. In his ruling, Justice Ngoran criticized Trump and his sons, Donald and Eric, saying, quote, their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological, unquote. The ruling came in a case brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James, who spoke to reporters after the ruling. Today, justice has been served. Today, we prove that no one is above the law, no matter how rich, powerful, or politically connected you are, everyone must play by the same rules. We have a responsibility to protect the integrity of the marketplace. And for years, Donald Trump engaged in deceptive business practices and tremendous fraud. Donald Trump plans to appeal the ruling, which he described as a complete and total sham. This comes as more than $27 million in Trump campaign funds went to legal costs in the last six months of last year. For more, we're joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times investigative reporter Russ Butner. His team's reporting led to Letitia James' case. Uh, Russ, we welcome you to Democracy Now!, and it's great to have you with your former colleague, Juan Gonzalez, uh, to talk about this case. Why don't you start off by talking about this unprecedented ruling? What exactly are we talking about when we're talking about more than $400 million that President Trump has to pay? And when does he have to do this? And in what way? Well, I think what we're talking about is a, a blow to his personal finances and his business finances that he really can't handle at this point. Um, he doesn't have that much cash. When we looked at him five years ago, we had 20 years of his financial uh, records and his tax returns, and he was down to below $50 million in cash, both personally and in his businesses. He's had a couple of one-shot things from selling some assets, an asset he doesn't control, refinanced. Uh, as recently as last year, he may have had uh, over $300 million, but our experience with him is that his businesses eat cash, generally, they require constant infusion. So if he had that much then, he wouldn't now. He'll have to pay that if he chooses to appeal, which it seems he certainly will. Um, he would have to put up some sort of bond or put the full amount, essentially, into escrow when he files the appeal within 30 days. If he does the bond, from what we've understood, he might have to guarantee to repay that amount plus an extra 20 percent. So he's, we, we believe that he's negotiating now, trying to find somebody, an insurance company, to uh, put that bond up for him. And that would require him to most likely put a lien on some of his properties. But the long game here is that he's most, if this judgment holds and withstands appeal, he would most likely have to sell uh, several assets. And that could pose an existential threat to him because he has some assets that make money. Those would be the most likely ones to sell, and that would pose a real threat to the rest of his enterprise if that happened. And uh, Russ, uh, first, hello. We haven't talked in, uh, in many years. We used to work together at the New York Daily News. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, uh, what about uh, the appeal uh, situation here? What's the likelihood from your sense that he might his appeal might be successful or at least uh, involve a reduction of the uh, of the fine? Yeah, it's great to be with you, Juan. I, from what I've seen and what I've to been told by other lawyers who have looked at this, 
it doesn't seem like there's much chance to overturn the entire judgment. This is a 92-page judgment. Judge Engeron goes through blow by blow each allegation. This was a, 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 um, a case that was based on records, not really testimony. The testimony in the case was mostly a way just to get the records into evidence. And it's an overwhelming pattern of them lying to their lenders about what they're doing. And that's the, that's the threshold in the law that you can't you can't mislead your lenders about what's happening. There, there is always a possibility with these sort of appeals that the judgment might be reduced uh, because Judge Engeron, again, has seems to present a very well-reasoned argument as to the ill-gotten gains. That's what all of this is. They, the, the judge ruled that they're following the attorney general's recommendation that there was $170 million roughly in beneficial interest rates that they wouldn't have gotten if they had been truthful, and that they were able to sell two assets, a golf course and the hotel in Washington, D.C., um, that they wouldn't have been able to buy initially if they hadn't fraudulently obtained these loans and continued to lie their lenders to keep those loans active. So there's some possibility that that could be reduced. Um, but it doesn't seem like it would be likely to be reduced down to like $30 million. It seems like it's going to remain a very high number. Should take about, I think appeals in New York generally take about a year and a half to get all the way through. Um, so possibly by this time in a couple of years or towards the end of next year, we might have a kind of final ruling and the ultimate day of reckoning for the Trump organization. And also, uh, the impact of uh, the uh, ju of the judge continuing the uh, bu uh, Judge Barbara Jones as an independent monitor over Trump's businesses and his ordering an additional independent director of compliance. Isn't this uh, actually a much more long term uh, problem for the Trump uh, Trump organization in terms of being able to conduct its normal way of business? Well, it's normal way of business. It doesn't seem to be a normal way of business. It's a very unusual organization. I've talked to people who worked there off and on over the last 40 years. One of the unique things about it is there's really nobody there who knows how each business is performing except Donald Trump and his longtime financial accountant, uh, Alan Weisselberg. Um, so the idea that somebody else is overseeing the movements of money there, I think, is really intrusive to him and possibly kind of embarrassing. There are one of the unique things about those businesses is that they're constantly moving cash from one or two businesses or his fortune from entertainment um, money into the different businesses. The UK golf courses have all lost money. They required tens of millions of dollars just to stay open. The post office hotel in Washington, D.C., he was pumping seven to ten million dollars of new cash into that every year to make it for operating losses. Now you're going to have somebody overlooking that all of that, telling him what he can't move, trying to maintain the value of what's there to make sure that he can um, pay whatever judgment comes through. That's a very intrusive process to a guy who had basically spent his entire life in a in a bubble that first his father financed and then a fortune from entertainment financed. And he didn't have to have answer to anyone, not a board, not an investor, rarely even a bank. That's going to be a hard blow for him. Judge Ngurin said their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological. Talk about the significance of this, Russ Buechner. Well, I, I think it goes really to—it's a very, I think, important element of the appeal. Um, when a judge—when a, when a, when a fact finder, whether it's a judge or a jury, 
generally uh, comes to a conclusion about the reliability of a witness, and they are basically the only defense they had was their testimony, but them not being reliable, that's very tough for an appellate court to overturn. I don't believe that happens very often. Um, but I think it's also, it's a tough message to send out to the business world. You know, Donald Trump had to get these loans initially because he had defaulted on $285 million in loans on his Chicago tower. That's just money he received and never paid back. So he's really put into a bind. His son-in-law got him introduced to the personal financial and the personal wealth division at Deutsche Bank. That's why he had to ask, they had to promise that he would meet these thresholds every year. He'd keep $50 million in cash and be worth two and a half billion dollars. That's how he got there. Um, and I think but I think really what the message is that like Donald Trump doesn't do contrition in any circumstance ever. What he does is division. And you see here, he divides the world into people who praise him and people who are horrible people. Uh, he's not really addressed the facts of this case, not during the trial. They've been very misleading in the comments that they've made publicly about this. Um, and that's a tough message to send out in the business community at a time when he's going to need uh, loans. He's going to need uh, an insurance bond to come up with this, that he's not a reliable person, that when they sign their name to a document, uh, as they did in this case every year to say they were meeting these thresholds, that it's really meaningless and that he thinks that's okay. That's the message he sent out to the business community. I think that's going to be a tough blow you for add, them. You well. add to this E. Jean Carroll owing her like 80-something million dollars. You're talking about uh, Trump paying out more than— a half a billion dollars. Now, how transparent are those who might make loans to them? For example, um, you've got MBS, Mohammed bin Salman's, you know, sovereign fund in Saudi Arabia, uh, investing $2 billion in Jared Kushner. Not in this case. He's the son-in-law, though, the husband of Ivanka. Um, you know, what about a foreign government giving him that money? Would the public know about this? That, that's not entirely clear to me. I would think in a court system, uh, the way the courts usually work, there will be some transparency on that. Um, you would think that the Barbara Jones is a very experienced federal judge and very experienced at these monitor situations and reports regularly to the court. They would be, I think, aware of what's happening there. But any place where there is a, a potential for uh, outside money to come in and influence the Trumps, I, I think is a real threat here. And I think that's something that everybody's going to have to pay attention to. That's been a threat to the way his businesses operate for years. You didn't have to pay Donald Trump when he was president. You could just buy a block of memberships at Mar-a-Lago, which happened. And then he took those new, that new membership money out his distributions out the back door. Um, so that's always a threat with him. And our system of governance and monitoring the finance of politicians is not really set up to catch these sort of things. So I think that's something—it's an excellent point, Amy, and I think everyone's going to have to pay attention to that going forward. And, Russ, in t uh, following up on that, in terms of the Trump Organization investments abroad, uh, assuming that uh, Donald Trump does get elected in November as, as uh, president again, uh, uh, there will at least uh, be, in uh, hopefully with this court monitoring of his the Trump organization finances, we'll supposedly have a better idea of what his foreign entanglements uh, uh, or the foreign entanglements of his organization would be. Is that accurate? 
I mean, I, 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 I certainly the monitor will, and certainly the compliance officer will. I'm not sure that's going to be their primary responsibility. I think their primary responsibility is to make sure that he's not pulling money out of the businesses. So when the judgment finally comes down, there's not enough there to pay the judgment, and he's already, you know, sort of disgorged it to his own, own personal finances. I think that's their primary focus. It does give them, obviously, a window to those sorts of things, but I'm not sure that there would be a mechanism for them to report concern about money coming from someplace else. I think if certainly if there's illegal transactions, there's illegal flows of large amounts of cash into some of his businesses, um, they would certainly notice that. Um, but again, I, I, it, it was really apparent during his presidency that the financial disclosure forms, the oversight agency uh, that looks into those things is really not equipped to handle something uh, like his very unique situation where he's getting millions and millions of dollars from just endorsement deals around the world um, and millions of dollars from people just staying in his hotels and buying memberships in some of his clubs. And, and I, I think we're going to have to at some point come to a realization that those systems need to be overhauled. Did you ever think that your reporting back in 2016 would lead to a Pulitzer Prize and to this epic uh, state um, investigation into the past president of the United States, who could be the future president of the United States? Um, I, I don't think I've ever, like, started a day thinking this might win me a Pulitzer Prize. I, I, I get sort of uh, enamored with the idea of digging into these things, and I love figuring out really complicated things. But you never know where it's going to go. I think Letitia James had her own ideas on how to pursue this, and I hope we hopefully help to inform that process a bit. But no, I don't think you ever think that uh, what you're doing uh, on a Monday morning is going to someday lead to you know, uh, uh, nice awards or that uh, the involvement of a president of the United States in a you know, multi-million dollar lawsuit. Russ Butner, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist at The New York Times since 2016, his reporting has focused on Donald Trump's personal finances. Next up to The Hague, where the International Court of Justice is holding a six-day hearing, where over a quarter of the world's countries are testifying against Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories. Stay with us.
the sun will not shine before me by Zenobia. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We go now to The Hague, where the International Court of Justice is holding a six-day hearing as over 50 countries are testifying against Israel's occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. It's the largest ever participation in world courts history. Palestinian Foreign Minister Riyad al-Malki said Monday, quote, the genocide underway in Gaza is a result of decades of impunity and inaction. Riyad Mansour, Palestinian envoy to the U.N. delivered emotional testimony Monday. The state of Palestine appeals to this court to guide the international community in upholding international law, ending injustice and achieving a just and lasting peace, to guide us towards a future in which Palestinian children are treated as children, <laughs> not as demographic threat, in which the identity of the group to which we belong does not diminish the human rights to which we are all entitled. A future in which no Palestinian and no Israelis is killed. A future in which two states live side by side in peace and security. The Palestinian only people only demand respect for their rights. They ask for nothing more. They cannot accept nothing less and nothing else. The future of freedom, justice, and peace can begin here and now. That was Palestine's permanent representative to the United Nations, Riyad Mansour, addressing the International Court of Justice Monday. Earlier today, South African Ambassador Vusi Madunsela addressed the court. The inordinate delay in achieving a fair and just settlement has resulted in an unending cycle of violence. A clear legal characterization of the nature of Israel's regime over the Palestinian people can only assist in remedying the ongoing delay in achieving a just settlement. We as South Africans sense, see, hear and feel to our core the inhumane discriminatory policies and practices of the Israeli regime as an even more extreme form of the apartheid that was institutionalized against black people in my country. For more, we're joined from The Hague, where the ICJ hearing is taking place, by Ahmed Aboufoul, legal research and advocacy officer at the Palestinian human rights organization Al-Haq. He contributed to their advisory opinion on the case. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Uh, this is historic, what's taking place right now, Ahmed, um, uh, at the International Court of Justice. More than half the world's countries are participating in this. 
Talk about the significance of this. And although we just played the South African envoy's comments, this is not to be confused with that other case, uh, the South Africa bringing the case um, around genocide against Israel in the court that just happened a few weeks ago. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me again, Amy, and congratulations on Democracy Now!'s 28th anniversary. Um, in this dystopian age of misinformation and biased media, especially uh, in the West, we value your work and uh, we con congratulate you and hope your viewer will continue to support your important work. Uh, you're absolutely right, Amy. This is a historical moment. For over 57 years, Israel has been um, uh, uh, perpetuating its occupation in the occupied Palestinian territories, dominating every aspect of their lives, uh, and maintaining this uh, occupation to uh, further facilitate and impose this apartheid regime imposed on the Palestinian people as a whole. One of the important features of this occupation is that it is colonial in nature. So it's combined with the continued unabated building of settlements uh, um, and the uh, theft of land and the demographic manipulation and engineering of the occupied Palestinian territory in an attempt to empty it from indi its indigenous people. Uh, um, a very common feature of colonial uh, regimes and projects trying to steal the land without the people. Uh, this is a historical moment, Amy, because this is, as you mentioned, uh, uh, the most... Uh, the case with the most interest by states uh, in the history of the advisory opinion procedure before uh, the court. And it shows you that the ward um, have something to say about this occupation. The whole body of occupation, of the law uh, of occupation, shows us that occupation was not intended to last that to last that long. Occupation is temporary in nature, but the way Israel perpetrated the occupations shows that Israel is not interested in ending that occupation, but it actually needs that occupation to further uh, um, uh, implement its uh, strategy to uh, um, acquire more land by force with uh, as less Palestinians as possible. And therefore, the premise of this case, I think there are three main legal arguments that Israel is violating what we call international law, peremptory norms, from which no derogation is permitted. So the first norm that Israel is violating is the acquisition of territory by force or the threat of the use of force. Uh, the second is Israel's violations of the Palestinian people's right to self-determination, uh, which is also uh, a peremptory norm, and the opposition of regime of racial discrimination and demographic manipulation in the occupied Palestinian territory and beyond, that is a regime of apartheid imposed on the, on the Palestinian people as a whole, denying them their un unalienable rights, including Palestinian refugees who continue to be denied their right to return to their homes uh, and villages. So this is an important moment where uh, for the first time, we would have the principal organ of the United Nations telling us the legal consequences of uh, Israel's occupation, and it will be extremely difficult for Israel's allies after that to justify Israel's actions uh, in any way possible. Israel has been instrumentalizing the rules of uh, international humanitarian law, the body of law that governs the situation of occupation, to further its settler-colonial project in Palestine. Um, uh, I think after this uh, decision, which I have no doubt that the court will uh, decide that Israel's occupation is illegal, 
um, it will be very difficult to support Israel and its policies by uh, Israel's allies, including the U.S. So all eyes uh, on the U.S. and how it will react to this important ruling. And uh, Ahmed Abufol, I wanted to ask you, for those who are not familiar with uh, these uh, international legal bodies, could you uh, briefly summarize the difference between the International Court of Justice proceedings and the separate case that South Africa filed, uh, uh, the complaint of genocide at the International Criminal Court uh, against Israel, especially in terms of the jurisdiction or the powers of the court uh, to have any direct uh, effect on uh, Israel's actions? Yes, um, absolutely. I, I think you meant South Africa's genocide case before the very same court, the International Court of Justice, um, and these are two different uh, proceedings. The International Court of Justice can look into uh, advisory proceedings where uh, any organ of the United Nations can ask the court to provide a legal opinion uh, on what the court uh, uh, thinks of a certain matter. Uh, usually such rulings are non-binding for states, but uh, uh, they're of particular importance as they guide the whole United Nation and the member states in uh, how to approach a certain uh, matter or a certain question. The other type of procedure is contentious cases, where states take each other to court when they have a disagreement on a matter of international law. So, for example, a disagreement on the interpretation of a particular uh, um, uh, convention to uh, to which both are, are parties and have accepted the court's jurisdiction. And that's exactly what South Africa did in the genocide case against Israel uh, on the interpretation of the genocide convention, uh, where it took Israel to court. So it's a case between South Africa and uh, Israel. While in the advisor opinion proceeding, there are no two parties. There's only the court that is deciding on a matter of question, and all states around the world are invited to uh, provide their written statements, their oral uh, interventions, to tell the court what is their position, uh, what is their interpretation of the law on that particular matter. Because international law uh, is made uh, by the practices of these states and what states around the world have accepted to be customary international law and have accepted to be the common interpretation of international law. So the, the law on occupation, as I said, is clear that the occupation was not intended to last that long and is temporary in nature, but it didn't set any uh, uh, time limit in which occupation has to end. So that's how Israel has been perpetuating this, uh, uh, described, often described as prolonged occupation. It's the longest occupation in modern history, uh, claiming under the uh, usual security pretext that it needs to continue its control and needs to continue um, its domination of the Palestinian people uh, and its violations of the perimetry norms. And, and what is the role of the public in these cases? Uh, uh, is there any? Uh, of course, of course, absolutely. The, the public, you know, don't have a standing in procedure or, or like um, uh, civil society organizations, for example, like the one I'm proudly associated with, that is Al-Haq, can always uh, submit to the court. But these submissions are not part of the proceedings. They're available at the seating of the court for uh, states participating in the proceedings, but also for judges to uh, read them and consult them. Uh, and we have already uh, published a position paper uh, outlining the key legal arguments in this case and our view on how the court should uh, um, approach uh, this case. 
but if if you allow me, these rulings are usually of particular importance to um, uh, to be used after. So how, for example, the state in question will utilize this ruling in its diplomatic efforts, whether taking this ruling to the General Assembly to adopt a, a resolution to the same effect, or perhaps to the Security Council, uh, although there will always be the U.S. Uh, veto. So um, what comes after that decision, uh, I think, is also of a particular importance. And uh, historically, the the, U the ICJ cases have served uh, in a way to uh, provide guidance on what international law uh, says and how states should behave. Behave, obviously. Not always the states have listened to such rulings or they try to disobey them. But for example, in the situation in, in, in South Africa and the ruling on the illegal presence of uh, uh, South African um, apartheid in Namibia, uh, it served and it, it created momentum for the mobilization on the ground, which eventually led to the end of that regime. So hopefully this advisory opinion is also another step forward to ending Israel's settler-colonial and apartheid regime imposed on the Palestinian people as a whole. Can you talk, Ahmed Abufoul, about the response of the court? This is when it was run by Joan Donahue. And important to point out, she came out of the State Department. She's the head of the International Court of Justice. But she is no longer the head of the Court of Justice. But it was under her, and it was her reading of the preliminary decision um, around uh, South Africa um, bringing its genocide case uh, to the court. If you can talk about who's the new head of the court. And then I want to ask you um, about what just happened in Israel, in the Knesset, voting not to expel Ofer Kassif, the lawmaker who's a member of the Hadash party, supporting the genocide case against Israel at the ICJ. Um, I just wanted to play a clip um, of the Knesset member Kassif speaking to Democracy Now! about facing expulsion, which didn't happen. They want me and my friends to shut up. They don't want us to raise our voice against any kind of violence. Because as I said million times, as someone who continuously for years objected and opposed the Israeli occupation and siege against the Palestinian people, we said, I said explicitly, that even the crimes of the siege and the occupation cannot and will never justify the massacre committed by Hamas. We added that the massacre, the criminal massacre by Hamas cannot justify the massacre and assault of Israel on Gaza, in which around 30,000 people are already dead, were killed. The vast majority, more than 70 percent, are innocent civilians, around 10,000 children. So that's a member of the Knesset who remains so because they lost the vote to expel him over Kassif. Um, and if you can respond to the new president, Nawaf Salam, who's replacing Joan, uh, Joan Donahue. Um, yeah, well, as, as you said, Judge Nawaf uh, uh, Salam, who's a Lebanese judge, he has been a member of the uh, of the court since February 2018, and uh, newly elected as president of the court since 6th of uh, February 2024. Uh, um, he is now the president of, of the court. But if you allow me, whether him or the American judge, judges before the ICJ, they don't serve as agents of their uh, state of nationality. They serve as independent judges who provide their personal views 
uh, about uh, international law and the interpretation of international law after hearing the positions uh, of the state. So it's it's not uh, um, um, it, it is not uh, in a way uh, usual to uh, presume that because of the nationality of the president of the court that the position will be aligned with the foreign policy of the state of that uh, judge. That is not the case, whether American or Lebanese or any other nationality uh, uh, of the president of the court. Uh, it is presumed, and the presumption is of uh, their professional uh, um, uh, you know, uh, way of work and deliver on their mandate uh, in accordance with uh, the law. Uh, as to um, uh, the voting to expel um, uh, offer King, uh, the um, uh, member of Knesset, it also, in my view, it shows you how radicalized Israeli society has become. So even the very tiny minority that you have where uh, Israeli Knesset members are calling for uh, the end of the occupation or calling for the bare minimum uh, of human decency, that is a ceasefire, uh, the rest of uh, Knesset members uh, um, uh, from the Israeli members are uh, mostly against that. Are uh, and and such tiny minority of those who call for Palestinian uh, rights are often attacked. And and as you said, there was an attempt to even remove him uh, from the Knesset. And I think it's it's very telling to see uh, also how supportive Israeli society has been in the genocide uh, against the Gaza Strip. Amy, we need not to forget that right before the war, the Israeli uh, society mobilized hundreds of thousands in, in the streets uh, uh, because of uh, Netanyahu's plan um, uh, to, uh, uh, you know, attack the judiciary or to minimize their, their authority in reviewing government's decision. Uh, but when it comes to Palestinians who are being oppressed, who are only a few meters away, the Israeli society somehow is unable to mobilize or call for the end of the occupation. So in a way, it seems that uh, the Israeli society has been radicalized uh, into believing that uh, for them to enjoy the privileges of this apartheid regime, they don't mind the Palestinians being oppressed. And unfortunately, the foreign policy of uh, states that claim to be friends to uh, Israel, I think, have contributed profoundly to such radicalization, simply because they've been ensuring impunity for Israel and Israeli war criminals who have been committing uh, crimes for the past uh, uh, decades. Uh, so I think, in a way, the reason that we have such uh, extreme government at the, at the moment, one of the uh, most uh, extreme and right-wing in the history of Israel, which has ministers who are broadly self-described as Islamophobic and uh, and homophobes and fascists uh, and, and racist ministers like Ben Gvir and uh, Smotrich uh, is a result of, uh, in my view, of the U.S. and European foreign policy ensuring that Israel enjoys an exceptional treatment, that Israel is untouchable, it enjoys prevailing impunity where Israel can commit crimes, but no one is held accountable. Ahmed, I'm so sorry that, well, when we last spoke, you'd already lost some 60 members of your family born and raised in Gaza. You are. Um, and I wanted to just ask, in this 30 seconds, um, about Benny Gantz's comments, uh, part of the War Council, saying if the hostages are not home by Ramadan, which was like March 10th, the fighting will continue everywhere, including Rafa. 
Yeah, well, well, it shows you also the the the, the character and the behavior of of uh, Israel. Israel is behaving like a, a pariah, is behaving like a rogue state, uh, is not listening to uh, anyone, is not listening to uh, its closest allies. Israel needs to have the humility to understand that the Palestinian people are free people, are not colonial subjects. They're entitled to their rights, and Israel at some point will need to sit and listen. Uh, uh, with seriousness to the uh, um, and consideration to the aspiration of the Palestinian people. The Palestinian people, Amy, are not asking for a favor. They're asking for their unalienable basic human rights. Uh, and I think the word for long has misunderstood the Palestinians. We're not even asking. We're demanding those rights. We're entitled to those rights, regardless of what Israel uh, think about that. Ahmed Abufoul, we want to thank you for being with us, legal research and advocacy officer at the Palestinian human rights organization Al-Haq, speaking to us from The Hague. Next up, we turn to a surgeon who's just returned from Gaza, wrote an L.A. Times op-ed headlined, I'm an American doctor who went to Gaza. What I saw wasn't war, it was annihilation. Back in 20 seconds. Sing to the World by Naibar Guti. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show on Gaza, where the death toll since October 7th is nearing 30,000. Amidst worsening hunger, UNICEF is warning that the war-torn territory is, quote, poised to witness an explosion in preventable child deaths, which would compound the already unbearable level of child deaths, unquote. On Monday, Palestinians rushed to get sacks of flour from a U.N. distribution center in Gaza City. This is a displaced Palestinian named Abdullah Sawaf. Because we want to eat, we are dying of hunger. Why would someone put himself at risk of dying by coming here? It is in order to feed the children. We are dying of hunger and there is no food or drink left in Gaza. There is a famine. Meanwhile, Israeli forces reportedly opened fire again at crowds waiting for humanitarian aid. We go now to Washington, D.C., where we're joined by Dr. Irfan Galeria, a plastic and reconstructive surgeon just back from volunteering in Gaza with the humanitarian aid group MedGlobal. His L.A. Times op-ed headlined, I'm an American doctor who went to Gaza. What I saw wasn't war, it was annihilation. Welcome to Democracy Now!, doctor. Explain what you saw, why you call it an annihilation. Certainly. Amy and Juan, thank you so much for having me on the show, and congratulations on 28 years. Look, I understand in war, you're going to have collateral civilian casualties. You'll have displaced citizens. But what I saw when I was in Gaza and what my team saw was vastly different. What we saw was a collateral humanitarian crisis of an unimaginable scale, over one million civilians struggling to survive, struggling to find shelter, struggling to find food, struggling to find drinking water. And what we also saw, what appeared to be a deliberate attempt to strangulate these civilians. We saw, while we were driving to Rafah, 
miles of trucks lining the road on the Egyptian side waiting to enter. You know, Amy and Juan, what's a very telling statistic is before this war began, almost 500 to 600 aid trucks would cross through the borders daily. It shows you how dependent this country was on aid even before the war. But now, after the war or during the war, the need is even greater, and less than 100 trucks are allowed to enter. What I also saw, and what our team also saw, was a deliberate attempt to incapacitate the health care system. The health care system in Gaza has collapsed. Hospitals have been targeted. They no longer have the physical capacity or space to care for their patients. Physicians are being killed. Healthcare workers are being killed. They're being targeted. They're being imprisoned. There's no medical aid or medical equipment that's coming through. You know, we operated under unsterile conditions, and we had outcomes and procedures that we had to perform in Gaza, unfortunately, because we didn't have access to basic medical equipment and aid. And the last thing I would like to add is, while they're facing this humanitarian crisis, they're facing a relentless attack, bombs and missiles regularly. And to me and to my team, there did not seem to be a distinction between any military, soldier, terrorist targets versus civilian targets. The stories we heard over and over again were the same. We took care of patients and civilians that were sleeping in their homes. I'll give you one example. There was a young child, he was 14 years old, a boy, who I had taken care of. He sustained what's called an open fracture on his left leg. He lost so much flesh that his bone that was fractured was exposed. His story was that he was in, lived in Kanyunis, and they went to a local school trying to seek shelter with other families. That school was bombed, and his entire family was killed, and he was orphaned. So there seems to be a deliberate attempt to target civilians, and there doesn't seem to be a very reasonable attempt to protect them in this conflict. And uh, Dr. Galaria, you you wrote in your in your L.A. Times piece. Uh, I couldn't help thinking that the lucky ones died instantaneously, either by the force of the explosion or being buried in the rubble. The survivors faced hours of surgery and multiple trips to the operating room. Could you talk about uh, some more about the uh, uh, the conditions under which you performed surgery while you were there? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in war zones. I've operated in small hospitals in Africa. I was n I thought I was going to be prepared, but I was not prepared for what I saw here in terms of not only the equipment and materials that I had access to, but the patients that I was taking care of. We lacked, as surgeons in the hospital then, basic equipment and basic materials, such as sterile drapes, basic surgical equipment. There are a lot of procedures that we couldn't perform because we didn't have access to that equipment. And as a result, patients suffered because we couldn't provide them with procedures or services that we could have provided for them here in America. Dr. Irfan Galeria, we have to end the conversation here, but we're going to continue online at democracynow.org. People can hear and watch our web exclusive. Um, Dr. Galeria is a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. Uh, he wrote an L.A. Times op-ed headlined, I'm an American doctor who went to Gaza. What I saw wasn't war. It was annihilation. That does it for our show. Uh, happy belated birthday to Neil Shabata. 
Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Faust, Mike Burke, Dina Guster, Sharifa Gokudus, Messiah Rhodes, Nareen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamar Joe John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, and Hannah Alias. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.